1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'll be talking with Drs. Oleg Banesh and Ron Zweigenberg about their co-authored book, Japan's Castles, Citadels of Modernity in War and Peace, which is out from Cambridge University Press in 2019. This book uses the fate of castles after the Meiji coup of 1868 as a case study to explore aspects of Japan's modern history, including historical memory, cultural heritage, state-civil society, national-regional relations, etc. The authors show that although castles entered the modern era as a symbol of the dark, feudal past Japan hoped to leave behind, they quickly took on a diverse set of functions and meanings. According to the authors, urban castles in particular, such as those in Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, for example, were important to the formation of both national and regional identities, playing key symbolic and practical roles as parks, military garrisons, representations of various collective pasts, etc. Especially as society was militarized in the 1930s, castles came to be celebrated as a unification of modernity and tradition, the imperial and the local, the military and the civilian. Though the political climate and the valences of Japan's recent and more distant pasts were thrown into upheaval with war and defeat, even after 1945, castles retained a literally and figuratively large footprint in modern Japan. Japan's Castles explores the divergent histories of castles, including Hiroshima, Kanazawa, Kokura, and also the castle boom of the early post war decades, to illustrate ongoing tensions between visions for individual regions and Japan itself in the period of national rebuilding that followed World War II. The book concludes with reflections on the significance of the current wave of castle reconstructions with authentic materials and techniques in the context of growing global interest in cultural heritage as a kind of intellectual property that conveys both soft power and hard currency. Whether dismantled or garrisoned or transformed into munitions, factories, or parks, and whether original, bombed, rebuilt, or conjured up as roadside attractions, Baneshin's Wagenberg show that the shifting circumstances and meanings of castles can teach us much about Japan's modern history. So, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, So I wanted to first ask uh, sort of our traditional question here on the podcast, which is um, how did you come to this project? What was the genesis, the origin of the project?
2: Um, So I
1: guess I should take it
2: because. Um, yeah, Oh, no, I was was just going to say Ron should definitely take it because I mean, the project essentially comes from uh, Ron's excellent first book on Hiroshima and some of the things he was finding in the archive there. So I think I'll, I'll let Ron speak a little more about that.
3: Yeah, thanks, Alec. Um, yeah, it started somewhat with uh, my first uh, my first book on Hiroshima, where I was uh, researching the rebuilding of Hiroshima after the bomb. And I realized that when they celebrated the reconstructed Hiroshima in 1958 in this big event uh, called the Hiroshima Reconstruction Festival, they're also reconstructing the... Hiroshima Castle, which was destroyed by the bomb, which I found at the time quite peculiar because a lot of what Hiroshima's reconstruction was about was modernity and building a modern city. So I couldn't really explain to myself why they're building the castle. So the a little section on this in the first book, but I started to be quite curious about this. And... um when I talked to Oleg about it, I realized there's a lot of a lot of things that we have in common in our interest in um martial culture and the remaking and invention in martial culture. Of course, Oleg wrote his first book about Bushido, right? So you wanna take it from
2: here? I mean I think there was this I mean also the when Rana and I first met quite a few years ago and we we're talking about this, I mean there was the the kind of basic question that i mean i don't think just struck us but it's probably struck many people in japan um both foreigners and japanese which is you know why are there so many concrete castles in japan um and you know really trying to get behind that i think was something that that really intrigued us on a basic level early on
3: yeah it's really started as a very basic thing as if you travel around japan and you just why are all those things here and especially if you know And you're aware of uh, medieval uh, European castles? It's even more peculiar because they're all made of concrete, and they might look nice from outside, but when you go in, they look quite. uh, I should have put it not very impressive.
1: Yeah, um, and of course, you know, living here in living here in Nagoya, which was one of your case studies, I certainly know what you're talking
2: about. Yeah, Mm, and that was. I mean, actually, that's Nagoya was the first castle I think I ever visited in japan when i first moved to japan i lived in okazaki you know not very far away for a couple of years and um yeah i remember visiting nagoya castle and being being quite surprised by uh, by what i found there once i got inside um and so yeah that you know always intrigued me long before uh, starting this project
1: Right. And I think we'll, we'll come back to Nagoya and some of the other case studies as we move mm. through the book. Um, but I wanted to uh, first get uh, you to lay out the, the, the sort of seven big uh, organizing themes uh, which you uh, put forth in the introduction. So um, you have a couple of um, which are uh, these sort of binaries, right, uh, about these sort of dynamic relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's some others. So if you could tell us what the, the big organizing themes of the book
3: are.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, these kind of big themes we look at here, as you point out, quite a few of them are are binary. Some of them are just kind of single concepts. Um, And I mean, these are really the things that, you know, as we're getting through the the project, that we're really kind of tying everything together and that we are seeing really consistently throughout the entire period. We're looking at, you know, from the 1860s up until the 21st century, um, and that all of these are relevant that we then, you know, come back to it at the end of the book, um, there throughout it. I mean, one of these things is this kind of symbolic versus functional roles of castles. Um, and this is really something that goes back into the early modern and even medieval period is the construction of castles. I mean, to what extent are they actually functional defenses? To what extent are they actually, you know, these real fortifications and to what extent are they just symbols of power? And I mean, this is something you see in, in Europe as well, that many of the medieval castles are primarily being constructed um, as just kind of symbols of, of the ruler's authority. And so that kind of um, tension between their symbolic power and their actual you know, role as fortifications is something that kind of goes throughout the book. Because really, you know, militarily, Japanese castles are effectively obsolete. Um, certainly, by the nineteenth century, and everyone realizes this, but um people continue to build them um because of the symbolic power and the the second theme we we talk about is this kind of tension between kind of the local and national, which I mean, when if we're going to talk about the national, then that is mu- a much more modern concept. But it is this kind of um this tension between kind of the regions and kind of the center and the and the larger Leland. And there, when we're talking about castles, is they are these things which are um, every little, you know, town, city, region has its, its own castle. It's very proud of its castle. But that castle is also part of this Japanese tradition of castles that, you know, it is a very Japanese thing. And so it works on both the ras- the kind of regional and national level that by having a castle, you are part of the Japanese whole, but your own castle is obviously um, probably the best one in Japan for various reasons. Um, so that's sort of tension also. And then we get into that with other levels about um, kind of between um, these power relationships between the central government, regional authorities, between kind of the the central military and kind of regional um, kind of military groups. And so various levels there where we're talking about different um kind of power relationships and i mean that idea of power relationships that kind of gets into the third theme we talk about which is about this relationship between the state and civil society in japan and i think this is quite an important thing i think castles are quite revealing um about the dynamics here in ways that a lot of other things i think haven't been they kind of shed a new light because um this kind of discussion about, you know, when civil society really originates in Japan, um, kind of separate from from the state, separate from, I mean, often kind of religious groupings. And I think castles are quite useful because we start seeing the development of civil society groups like castle preservation societies, um, various kind of heritage organizations and things that are, you know, groups of maybe business people, but also just citizens who are coming together in a cause and often challenging the state, um, they're often challenging the military, as I think we'll we'll probably talk about a bit later on. But I think through castles we can really see kind of a burgeoning civil society um, emerging, especially in in imperial Japan, which I think you don't necessarily see um, as clearly in in a few other um, areas of history. And um, then the other. Another theme there is kind of about um yeah the the role of the state um and kind of the different levels there to what extent you know the state actually um kind of has authority in these various areas to which to what extent people are willing to to challenge the state looking at the kind of the different levels of the state who has um authority especially over something like like castle space. So when we're talking about these these kind of power relationships, that's kind of one of the next themes, which is about kind of the different um, layers of of the state um, and different groups. And this is especially something we're already seeing in kind of the late Tokugawa period, early Meiji, when you have the central government um, establishing itself, the central state. um, You've still got kind of regional authorities in the various kind of daimyo families and such. And then going beyond that, how different levels of authority, these layers, um, are kind of contesting these sites. I mean, are these sites supposed to be now managed by the central government? Are they supposed to be by regional authorities, such as prefectures? Are they being run by the cities? And there's a lot of tension, actually, between these different groups. Um, And then once you put the military in there, as well as another actor, um, it's these spaces really kind of allow you to kind of track these different tensions, conflicts and power relationships between these groups. Um, and that kind of takes us to another theme when we're talking about these power relationships. And that's kind of the role of of religion um, in these spaces and how castles are oftentimes religious spaces. Um, so they're very often hosting um. Shrines or temples are are often existing in there from before, but also being built in the modern period for various reasons. We see um, daimyo families um, building especially shrines to their ancestors. We see um, the military and the government building shrines to fallen soldiers and building other religious memorials. So we even see certain religious groups kind of taking over entire castle sites. Um, And turning these into into sacred sites. So that relationship um, between kind of religious groups and kind of the state there, that's one of these other power relationships that we're looking at. And the kind of sixth theme we look at there is more about authenticity um, and then these ideas of heritage. And this kind of gets back to this original um, thing we're looking at, this interested us about, you know, why are there so many, many concrete castles? You know, why are they not built? out of wood and using traditional materials. And this is a debate that, again, really kind of goes through um, the entire period is, you know, why are certain buildings torn down? Why is that heritage not necessarily respected? Why are other things preserved? And when things are reconstructed, you know, how important is authenticity? And, you know, for much of the period we're looking at in the pre-war especially, it's maybe not all that important and even in the early post war um there's so much construction out of out of concrete oftentimes things are being embellished and so authenticity is um is not necessarily the most Im- important consideration um but there is also some tension there which we'll talk about and the final theme we get into is the global context um because i mean this is a see very much a, a project focused on japan but the things we see in japan um, are not necessarily unique to Japan, and many of the patterns we see when it comes to reconstruction, authenticity, these kind of conflicts between different actors, these are things you can see um, around the world. I mean, especially in Europe, which you know has a lot of old castles as well, and a lot of very similar conflicts. So we really try to put it into this um, kind of global framework to show um, these comparisons. So. I mean, these are kind of the seven themes that we, we really focus on throughout the book.
1: Yeah, and uh, Dr. Zwagenberg, it looks like uh, you had something you wanted to add to that.
3: Yeah, um, just jumping on on the last uh, two issues with TASI. This, this is something that we looked at throughout, I think, the, most of the first half. And we've been working on this for four or five years. And the first two years, we were mostly focused on TASI and heritage. And only gradually, all those other themes have uh, emerged and when we realized that castles are such a rich site for exploring Japanese history, we had this uh, really good moment uh, when we realized, I think, uh, what is it, one of the uh, talks you gave, I believe it was, when we realized that militaris- militarization, demilitarization, are actually the guiding kind of argument that we we should pursue here. But but this is still, uh, of course, very important for us, and it's something that I intend to pursue. And, and when we and we pursue a little bit, and when we write about say what ex- really um, and we can talk about it later on. What really surprised me the most is the thing, the last thing. How global was this? How much of what happening in Japan happened everywhere else, and how much connected were those uh, those developments? Uh, specifically because. Initially, it was conceived as a very Japanese project for both of us, I believe.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so the, before we jump into the body of the book, I think it's uh, important for me to ask a sort of definitional question. And without getting too into the weeds or too nerdy about the whole thing, um, what is a castle? Um, and in particular, I'm asking this because uh, there's a distinction between the the keep um, and the castle uh, which is important. Um, you also have this Japanese word, tenshu, which has two different uh, orthographies, two different sets of kanji, uh, which maybe you'd like to talk about that as well since uh, it does come up in the book. And then, of course, the who cares question, right? Like, is it important that a castle is different than a keep? Um, and how does that uh, influence? What significance does that have for our understanding of castles and also the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's an excellent question question very fundamental one it's, it's usually kind of the, the first one um, i think ron and i both get when we're we're talking about this subject to um, audiences that are not japan specialists a, especially you know what is a japanese castle i mean um ultimately it's it's that kind of full kind of assembly of of walls and moats and gates um and turrets and then usually um at the very center you have this this very large keep um, which is kind of the the symbol of of the castle and really comes to um i guess summarize the castle that if if you don't have a keep then um especially in the modern period, the castle just seems incomplete, and that that's one of the reasons we ended up kind of focusing on the keep in in this book. Um, because many of the moats and walls around Japan especially have kind of been lost. They were filled in throughout the modern period. They were torn down. They were repurposed for other things. Um, Many keeps were torn down as well. But when we talk about reconstruction and when the the frenzy of castle reconstruction happens in the 1950s and 1960s, it's almost always about the keep. Um, There are many places that end up restoring also walls and moats and such, but really the focus is the keep. And even like a, you know, a, a great castle. Um, I mean, let's take Edo Castle, you know, now the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, which, you know, is the largest castle in Japan. Um, there is a sense that something is missing there because it doesn't have a keep. And there's actually currently a, a quite a prominent movement to rebuild the, the Edo Castle keep there. Because in spite of its, its size, in spite of the, being the Imperial Palace and everything else, by not having a keep, there's, there's just something lacking there the kind of identity of, of, um, the site. And I mean, to, to answer that other question or, or talk about that a little bit, um, to the extent that we can answer this, the this, this thing about um, the tenshu that just Japanese term where, as you mentioned, there's two orthographies, there's two sets of, of, of kanji there. Um, and the older one, which the two kanji are the same ones, which are used for the traditional rending rendering of the Christian, um, God, um, and then the second one means heavenly protector. The se- the the second orthography, and that is has been tied to Buddhism and a few other things, but is a bit more um, neutral, shall we say? But one reason that this becomes quite significant um, is that in the sixteenth century, kind of the first major keep in Japan um, built by Oda Nobunaga at um, Azuchi is. Seen as, by many people as being influenced um, by the Jesuits, especially and, and based on European models. And there is speculation in the Tokugawa period that Oda Nobunaga was influenced um, and was actually by the Jesuits and was worshiping the Christian God in this keep. Um, and that's one of the reasons it, it was given this name. And this, this idea, whether it's accurate or not, there's still debate about this, but this debate goes on throughout the Edo period. And the keep continues to have this this connotation as being something potentially European in origin, and possibly modeled on Christian churches. And this becomes quite significant once we get into the modern period, um, with the rise of nationalism, because people are now arguing that, well, actually, these keeps are a purely Japanese invention, there is no foreign influence on these at all, um, and it's quite a often a a chauvinistic argument without much evidence either way, but essentially trying to um, just eliminate any hint of foreign influence on these, whether it's European or Chinese, and just trying to demonstrate that these are purely Japanese. And one way of kind of emphasizing that is by getting rid of those or trying to get rid of those other characters that are similar to the Christian God and bringing in um, what seem more Japanese ones. So um, there's a lot of, of tension here. And these debates, you know, really ramp up in the imperial period um, in the 1910s and 1920s.
1: Yeah, I thought this was a sort of interesting uh, example of the, the seventh theme, in a sense, the global context of castles, right? And their questions about authenticity um, and links to a sort of uh, uh, uniquely Japanese identity in the discourse, you know, right from the very beginning. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I, I certainly as uh, somebody who didn't know uh, a whole lot about castles before, and, you know, reading the book, um, that was sort of fascinating to me that that's, you know, baked in from the very beginning. Um, So I want to jump into the the book itself. Um, And it's arranged into two parts, uh, chronologically, uh, Meiji to about 1945. And then part two um, is a thematic uh, rendering from 1945 onward, the the, the post-war period. Um, And I think if I'm reading this correctly, you're sort of looking at 1868, the Meiji restoration, the coup d'etat that creates the modern state, and then 1945, uh, the, the end of World War II, um, as these two sort of major turning points. And those are kind of bookending um, the, the the first period. Um, and if I if I understand from uh, uh, talking to you guys, uh, it looks like Dr. Banesh was uh, largely responsible for uh, some of the initial research for uh, part one. So I'm going to direct my questions about part one to you. Um, so let's start with chapter one, which is castles and the transition to the imperial state. Um, And so this is the sort of historical background about castles in the early uh, years, the early decade or so, two decades or so of the modern period, uh, the 1860s and 1870s. Um, so you write that um, the history of castles complicates our understanding of the Meiji transition, as many of the great changes after 1868 were actually the realization of earlier moments. At the same time, castles presented opportunities for the new government to establish and consolidate its authority through a combination of old and new. So could you tell us about the state of castles at the end of the Tokugawa, the beginning of the Meiji period, and then what changed and what remained the same uh, across that Meiji transition?
2: Mm, no, that's a- an excellent question, and I think, I think, and that's when you you talk about both of these kind of periods, eighteen sixty eight, then then nineteen forty five, these these turning points, and I mean that's where we can, I think castles are quite useful in, like really showing kind of the continuities also across um, both these periods, and and when we're talking about kind of the Meiji Restoration, that kind of transition, especially, um, when it comes to castles, there are a lot of things that you know, are actually continuities from what goes before. And one of these things is, as I mentioned earlier, is this realization that, you know, militarily, castles are quite obsolete. And, I mean, we can see this, this the recognition of this in the fact that, you know, the Goryokaku, you know, this five-sided fort up in um, Hokkaido, just outside of Hakodate, you know, is built in the 1860s as kind of a modern star fort because, you know, this is the sort of thing that would actually be used to defend Japan. Um, but castles are still being built at that at that time as largely symbols but one thing is this recognition of castles as being obsolete um there are a lot of daimyo actually in the tokugawa period especially in the 19th century who want to get rid of these castles because they are actually they're quite a burden um a drain on finances the tokugawa has very strict regulations on castles um not only is New castle construction restricted, but any existing castles have to be kept at a certain um, state of repair. You're not allowed to add to them without permission, but you're also not necessarily allowed to um, have them decay. So most domains end up spending about 10% of their income, um, it's estimated, on castle maintenance. And many of them don't really necessarily see uh, the point of this and kind of want to get rid of these relics, especially... Um, once they're obsolete. And after 1868, now that we have this transition um, and kind of the confusion that follows in 1869, 1870, um, this uncertainty, there are um, really many, several dozen kind of requests that are sent towards um, Tokyo that are put into the Meiji government from various domains, asking for permission to tear these castles down, um, to just be done with them. because. One of the things that happens is in the very early Meiji period, the domains, um, essentially, as they all become part of the centralized state, their stipends are cut to about, you know, 10 to 20 percent of what they were before. And if earlier they were spending 10 percent of their budget on castle maintenance, you know, suddenly, um, if all you've got is 10 percent of your total budget anyway, I mean, all your money is going on castle maintenance. And so we have, you know, dozens of these petitions going into um, to Tokyo to tear these things down. Um, We don't really have a centralized policy at that point, and quite a few castles are just torn down. Um, The local authorities decide to just, you know, use the turmoil, just make an executive decision on their own, and just get rid of these things. Um, They are described as useless um, objects. Um, They're really seen as unpleasant reminders of the feudal past in many places, um, especially in an age which is kind of defined by, you know, Bunmei Kaika, this kind of civilization and enlightenment. So, you know, this dozens of castles, and I mean, really hundreds of structures, if we're talking about gates and watchtowers and other things and walls are torn down in the first decade of the Meiji period. Um, And this isn't just a sudden backlash that starts in Meiji against the old. It's something that's been going on for quite a long time before the Meiji period about these obsolete structures and wanting to get rid of them. So what might seem like a break with the past is actually um, oftentimes a bit of a continuity there. Um, One of the, the other continuities we have there is the castles, which are these quite highly restricted spaces op- occupied by um, the daimyo and by the warriors, essentially in the Tokugawa period. Um, after the transition into Meiji, many of them remain restricted spaces. Um, you often still have the same daimyo in charge of their domains, at least early on. Um, and the general public are still not allowed into the castle, so to speak. So we have a, a continuity there. These are still restricted spaces. Quite a few castles are taken over by the military. Um, so they, re- they remain these kind of military sites. It's now the modern military rather than the samurai. But in effect, they are still um, military sites. Um, so that's kind of another continuity we have there. The idea that the castles are kind of for the warriors is something that also continues on into Meiji. So even when castles are sold off and torn down, um, oftentimes this is done for the benefit Um, of the warriors, that many castles are sold um, in order to help support the warriors. The former warriors are now losing their stipends. So the the materials are sold for scrap. Um, Warriors are allowed to now um, farm crops in the castle moats. Gates are sold sold to temples. Um, So there is a lot of continuity there in that kind of connection between castles and warriors, at least in a very practical sense. So I'm um, in some, you know, there's a lot of continuity there um, in terms of attitudes towards castles going from kind of the late Tokugawa period into the early Meiji period in terms of, of how these things are seen. Um, there's also some practical continuity in the sense that in the Tokugawa period, these are very much restricted spaces, obviously. I mean, this is where you have the daimyo, many of the, the higher ranking warriors living in these castles. Um, they're very much restricted. And that goes on after the Meiji period, that many of these castles remain restricted spaces um, that you still um, have either the daimyo living in there, then governors, and then many of them are taken over by the military. So for many of the people in the towns, um, the castle space doesn't actually um, change that much. It's still inaccessible. It's still the site of authority. Um, So there is quite a lot um, of continuity there. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, if Ron wants to add anything there.
3: Yeah, I wanted to add that we didn't go too far into Tokugawa. Obviously, it's a book about uh, Japan modern period. But uh, part of the reasons why we didn't go too much into it. There is a huge gap in scholarship. One of thing that really intrigued me about, and I think of as well, intrigued us about Kasa is the fact that almost all of their history and in uh, Sengoku, in the Warring war State period, there's a lot of, Written about castles, uh, both in English and in Japanese, a lot of very excellent scholarship about castles, but it's almost uniformly stuck with Tokugawa period. So uh, something that I think kind of calls for much more research in terms of continuity between eras into modernity is um, the fate of castles in Tokugawa. Something that I particularly uh, care about giving, my, giving uh, what I wrote on the second part is the. It's the attitude of commoners and city folks to their castles. I mean, people build those castles. We usually think about those castles as in context of the Lord, usually a famous warlord uh, like um or Date Masumone, But what about the people who build them? We don't know much about the people who build them, but the people who live next to them. And there's something that I would definitely, I uh, definitely think need uh, more research. Uh, part of it is because castle history is more or less, again, end in the warring state period. And a lot of it is connected to very peculiar, um, culture of people who love castle and feel very strongly about castles, but mostly through, again, the lords. This got to do with the uh, video games and, and the image, the modern image of the samurai um, and the whole, uh, the whole culture of people who are really into castles, there's an enormous amount of material online on castles. But Tokugawa era in particular, because there's no warfare happening there, it's kind of a gap in a scholarship.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I wanted to uh, jump into uh, chapter two. And chapter two, Chapters two and three form a kind of unit because they're dealing with concurrent developments um, from the late 1870s into the 1920s. Um, Chapter two looks primarily at this sort of local versus national identity dynamic that we've talked about. Um, And then, and really, I mean, I guess chapter three does that as well. Um, And you talk about particularly the 1880s, which is the beginning of this period as a kind of nadir for both uh, samurai and castles, but also uh, conversely and sort of paradoxically being sort of the cusp of their rehabilitation into national culture, right? And you've already gestured to this idea that at the beginning of this period, they're kind of an unwelcome reminder of the feudal past, um, but you talk about how that changes during this period. So in chapter two, the discovery of castles, 1877 to 1912, um, you're really thinking more about smaller castles under uh, regional civilian control, um, and you have this really provocative quote i'd like you to tell us a little bit more about. You said over the course of the Meiji period, castles became national symbols through a largely organic process, and I thought the organic part of it was really the provocative part
2: uh, yeah no I think that's that's an excellent question, and i mean the the organic Comes from, I mean, the lack of a central policy, as I mentioned before. I mean, in the very early Meiji period, there's no central policy on these, and it really takes a long time for any sort of policy to develop um, about castles and what should be done with them. Um, a few are taken over by the military, many are are sold off, some are torn down, and you know, especially in a lot of the the very small cities and towns, um, you know. People have other things they're worried about. Um, Some of these become de facto public parks. No one really wants them as kind of reminders of the past. Everyone wants to move away from them, which is why so many of them are actually torn down. Um, But over time, you know, once you get, especially into the 1880s, that very immediate memory of the Tokugawa, of this kind of, um, unlike the feudal past begins to fade a little bit um, we start to see these as as being more valuable sites in various ways as that heritage has some sort of value and this, this ties in with the global connections that um, there are many foreigners especially Europeans who are traveling to Japan um, they are recognizing these castles um, and appreciating them the Japanese are, are seeing this and many Japanese are traveling to Europe and also seeing European castles, and seeing that there is a recognition there of the value of one another's heritage. So by the late 1880s, there's certainly some some value attached to castles. And, I mean, very few castles, um, at least castle keeps, are torn down after about 1880. Um, and the military, as we said, in the very early um, 1870s, the, the military takes over almost 60 castles, Um, It reserves them for military bases. It ends up only using about half a dozen of them before the 1880s. And then in 1889, it ends up um, selling off um, quite a few of these. I mean, 19 of these are sold. And of those 19, 17 um, go back to the daimyo families that owned them originally. And so the daimyo who had all moved to Tokyo are now um, at least... If not moving back to the their actual towns, they're starting to rebuild the relationships with them. They're starting to they're building shrines in their former castles. They're taking an interest in them. They're investing a bit, and the castle sites are starting to be um, celebrated again. Um, so what you do see throughout the Meiji period is by the end of the Meiji period, these castles, um, local castles, regional castles, are starting to be seen as sites of local pride. We have little. Um, civil society groups that are springing up, little preservation societies. Um, we see people interested in castles. The larger castles are starting to be used by the military to um, kind of dr- create um, a link between the modern military and Japan's supposedly ancient samurai spirit. I mean, with Bushido um, and things like that. So there are actually quite a few different routes and different people are using castles for different reasons. But, you know, by the late Meiji period already, you do have um, this general acceptance of the value of castles um, through, yeah, what I think is, is really an organic process. There is no real kind of central Um, policy or organization to this. Yeah, thank
1: you. Um, So one of the binding sort of overall themes of this particular chapter is one that you've already alluded to in talking about um, uh, parks, right, is this idea of castles as public versus private spaces. Uh, And I wonder if you could tell us about the changing spatial politics uh, around castles at this time, Uh, and in particular, how that played out in uh, the smaller cities that are sort of the focus of this chapter.
2: I mean, especially in the smaller cities, which, you know, the the central government isn't as concerned about um, what happens to castles is, is quite varied as I mentioned, quite a few of them turn into kind of de facto public parks because um, once the daimyo has left, uh, many of the buildings are sold off and torn down. Um, They're just kind of overgrown. They're these kind of empty spaces in the center of cities that people just start using for recreation and other things some places it's a bit more organized in Matsuyama for example um they the city actually is using it as a public park um and what you end up is you getting is like actually kind of creating some some gathering spaces spaces that people can use these are often on high ground um, usually in the centers of the cities and you know they're just kind of nice places to be as most people um in Japan today you know they're Still, many of the central parks in Japan are are castle parks in Japanese cities. So in that sense, uh, many of them turn into parks. Many of these castle spaces um, that are not taken by the military are reused for other um, official purposes, such as building prefectural headquarters, building schools, building other government buildings which um, people need to use and they attract people into these spaces. So people go to city hall, people go to school and they enter the castle. And so through that process as well, people are really using these castles and we're getting a new type of public space emerging here. I mean, the idea of the public park is something which comes into Japan um, from Europe in the early Meiji period. And I think that also connects in with these reuses of castles, um, because you're, you're seeing the development of a new type of public space beyond, say, what in the Tokugawa period would often be temples and shrines as, as the existing public space. You now have kind of this, this secular public space, um, oftentimes with new kind of government buildings in it. So um, we really see some, some interesting dynamics um, going on there in the Meiji period.
1: Yeah. And then in chapter three, which is castles, civil society, and the paradoxes of Taisho militarism, uh, you shift gears toward the major urban castles occupied by the military during Japan's imperial period. Can you tell us about the relationships between the castles and military, uh, the military, the cities, the public, uh, civil society, castles during this time? Uh, And also, um, what was the social the political, the economic significance of having massive garrisons in Japanese cities. Uh, Tying it into the the book's themes, what were the symbolic and practical functions of these urban castles in these years? Uh, And I just sort of, to to preview it, you have this lovely quote from Colin Jondrell that suggests the relationship was quite tense. Uh, uh, Jondrell wrote, many civilians remained dubious about living next door to hundreds, excuse me, thousands of hard-drinking, armed, and horny
2: 20-year-olds. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that quote by John, and I think that um certainly applies to Japan, but it applies to just about anywhere where you have um kind of military and civilians living in very close proximity. I mean, I think a lot of the issues we see in, in Okinawa, for example, today, um, could be comparable um to that situation. And um I mean this this whole issue of of the military, um, and especially when I'm talking about Taisho military, Here, But this issue of the military is something that um, Ron and I kind of came to a bit later. As as Ron mentioned, the first couple of years when we were working on the project, we were focused on these ideas of um, kind of authenticity and heritage. And then gradually, as we were going through the sources, looking at things, we really discovered there was a much bigger story here about the role of the military. But that role of the military has been so comprehensively erased um, in the last um, almost seventy years that um it took us quite a while to really um be getting to the bottom of this and i mean that's something Ron will talk a bit more about um, about that that process of erasure in the post war but um i mean essentially the the role of of the military um especially in the in the larger cities is you know the first um six large um kind of military organizations the the Chindai um, that are set up in the in Japan. These first giant six garrisons are essentially all set up in castles, and in the very early Meiji period, and in throughout the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, as kind of more and more um, garrisons are set up throughout Japan with you know infantry divisions and regiments, so many of these are being set up in castles um, because these spaces are available as the military is being established and expanding. I mean, in 1884, there are already, you know, 14 castle garrisons. Um, in the next decade, they create 10 new regiments, and these are all also put into castles. And in many of these regional cities, I mean, the troops can be 10 to 25% of the population. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of of troops in these areas, and this, this causes a lot of tension. Um, when I talk about civil society earlier, um, there are many people who would actually like to get um, the soldiers out of their castles because of all these problems um, that um, you have by having all these, uh, as John Drill says, kind of drunk, horny twenty-one-year-olds. Um, and we get these tensions between you know wanting to get the military out of the castles, out of the center of the city, but not wanting to get rid of the military completely because the military is a huge economic force in all these especially in the regional cities um so there's this many places i mean nagoya is a good example actually um, they want to get the army out of um the castle but they don't want it to leave completely they want it to move out into the suburbs somewhere so you you know you keep all the economic benefit but you get the problems out of the center and there's movements similar to that all over japan is like let's get um, the military out of the center of the, of the town, um, move them somewhere else. The military obviously doesn't want to leave the castle spaces um, because, especially in the early 20th century, they're recognizing the symbolic value of these spaces. Um, and so they end up essentially saying, well, if you if you want us to leave, we're going to leave completely. We're not going to move into the suburbs. And so towns like Nagoya end up um, essentially caving into that um, and saying, okay, you, you can stay. We're going to stop. Um, complaining about this but so what you end up is you end up with a situation throughout japan where the urban areas um have very large military presences at the very centers of them and um this is not only symbolic but it, it ends up having very practical effects and especially in the taisho period where you know the, the taisho narrative um we always hear about talk about taisho democracy. Um, where this kind of liberal interlude, but I think along, I, I don't think that's that's necessary in, inaccurate. But I think there's this other story about this kind of Taisho militarism, as I call it, which is essentially um, this very strong military presence in the urban areas, and we see this, for example, um, in the Hibiya riots after the the uh, Russo-Japanese War. These big riots in central Tokyo, the police are completely overwhelmed. Um, But they can send the Imperial Guard out from the Imperial Castle um, to essentially put the riots down very quickly. And the largest scale we see this then, um, we see it with various strikes, riots and other things throughout the 1910s. And then in 1918, um, the Rice Riots, which erupt throughout Japan, um, so many of these are put down by castle garrisons. I mean, throughout the Rice Riots, which take place, again, all over Japan there's roughly 92,000 troops that are mobilized um, when the police can't deal with it. And throughout Japan, you know, close to 100,000 troops are being mobilized to, to crush these riots. Um, most of these troops are coming out of castle garrisons. I um, mean, in places like Osaka, uh, Kanazawa, um, Hiroshima, everywhere, the, the people are being mobilized um, from the castle garrison. So after the rice riots, um, you know there isn't so much public protest, and I think they have a very kind of strong symbolic message that um, really the military is the kind of de facto force. They are the authority um, in urban Japan, and so challenges to the state can only go so far um, before the military might might be uh, moved out. And we see that, for example, in in the Great Kantō earthquake in 1923, afterward, where again um yeah the imperial guard is 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 mobilized um to and is involved in um what are probably um quite a few atrocities there and when we look at it kind of in in terms of scale and this i think the comparison helps here if we look at something like osaka um osaka castle um and the surround it's it's the largest arsenal in asia um it is a huge site it's got thousands of troops in it um there are Ultimately, you know, tens of thousands, um, maybe hundreds of thousands of people working in the arsenal. And the scale of it, um, it's about the same size as Central Park in New York City, the scale of the site. It's um, for those people in Europe, it's about one and a half times the size of Hyde Park um, and Kensington Gardens Green Park combined in London. Um, And it's not a park. You know, it's a giant military base. And there really aren't any big parks at that point. Um, so if you go to Osaka now, you have this big castle park and it's very nice and people go there. But at the time, um, you know, it was a, a very large military base and um, quite oppressive in many ways. So, you know, what does that do to the dynamic of a city if you don't have a big park, um, you just have a very large military base is, is one of the things um, we're looking at there.
1: Yeah. And then in Chapter Four, uh, which rounds out the uh, uh, part one of the book, uh, Chapter Four, Castles in War and Peace, Celebrating Modernity, Empire, and War, uh, you talk about the role that castles played in this comprehensive militarization of society uh, between the late 1920s uh, all the way up to the you know, so the end of the war um, in 1945. Um, in this chapter, you're arguing that um, the by the 1930s, castles are celebrated as the sort of unification of modernity and tradition, imperial and local military and civilian. Um, so how, how did they go from that sort of nadir of the 1880s to this sort of peak of, of popularity
2: and symbolic,
1: and I guess also practical importance in the
2: 1930s? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an excellent question, and that's Pretty much um, it ties in with this kind of organic process, as I mentioned earlier. And I'm mean, going to maybe I'll just um, use Osaka again as an example where what we have in the in we have this obviously very large military um, base sitting in the center of Osaka. And we also have a lot of resistance against this. There are, are quite strong civil society movements supported by the mayor of Osaka in the early 1920s who want to get the military out of the castle. Um, they want to turn the castle into a public park, and they end up negotiating with the army, um, and the army agrees. The army is quite um, cash-strapped in the early 1920s, and they make a deal um, in 1925, essentially, with the city that they will give the city the very center of the castle as a public park. It's a it's quite a small part of the castle, um, and they will allow um, the city to build um, a concrete keep, to rebuild um, Toyotomi Hideyoshi's keep, um, provided that the city spends even more money um, building a new headquarters building for the army, which, which they don't have. And so in, its, in the city's desire and civil society's desire to um, kind of have this space and um, demilitarize the site, at least to a certain extent, um, to get their castle back, so to speak, Um, they go in on this deal, um, they spend, um, a vast amount of money that's all raised from donations from, from individuals and businesses, and they build a giant new headquarters building, which is, you can still see there next to the keep. And they also rebuild the keep. And so this becomes, um, kind of this very popular public park. And so on weekends, you know, people in Osaka, they go to this public park. Um, which is the middle of a of a major military base. There's a divisional headquarters building there. So even as they are, you know, spending their leisure time, they are also um engaging with the military and seeing that relationship between the military and the castle. And the military is not just in Osaka but throughout Japan. The castles are sites for large expos. Um, they're hosting events, they're hosting festivals. Um And they're 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 doing flight demonstrations and they're really kind of celebrating the military in all these things. And this connection between castles and the military um, becomes very strongly um, promoted by both the military and then also by the civilian side in the 1930s. That when civilian groups um, are trying to rebuild castles in places like Igaweno. They're also um, inviting the military to to help Um, when they have expos to celebrate the castles. They also have big military displays. And so by the time you get into the late 1930s, there's a very strong connection um, between the army specifically um, and castles that, you know, the modern Japanese soldier is now the heir um, of the samurai, so to speak, of Japan's traditional martial culture. And castles are really kind of the physical uh, manifestation of that of that unity
3: can I jump in one second um, um, I want in connection to osaka the the headquarters building that uh, Oleg mentioned is built in a european as a european style castle, which was another peculiar thing that I was wondering about and it's actually not so peculiar if you compare castles in japan uh, the role of castles in Japan as as uh, Oleg mentioned as uh, places for garrison that uh, demonstrate the physical power of the state over striking workers, writing, uh citizens and the like. This is something that also happened in the state. If you see a very similar building uh, to the, what was it, the 4th Brigade headquarters? 4th mm-hmm. Division. 4th yeah. Division. Yeah, Oleg is better than me in uh, unit numbers. <laughs> um <laughs> for Division Headquarters, it's actually, correct uh, me if I'm wrong, model on uh, European armories, uh, yes, sorry, European and American uh, armories. There's a lot of those in American cities. Like where I went to school in New York City in Hunter College, when I went to, went to university, there's a huge armory on 68th Street. I also used to go to see art shows in the armory um, in Park Avenue and other places. All those places that are now as benign as Japanese castles what you see art exhibition like Houston House army units and munitions that will, uh, suppress striking workers. That is something that I wouldn't see. And I think we wouldn't see, uh, speaking of the global connections here without looking at castles through this history of militarism, realizing how much it is connected to, uh, connected throughout the world. And here also, uh, we can add and Oleg maybe can expand on this on, castles as an example of fascist architecture this is the
2: fascist era right mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that's obviously one of the the kind of big questions about you know japan and fascism and without wanting to get into into those those debates of you know was japan fascist um you know there i think there's agreement that you know japan never really developed that much infra- fascist infrastructure or fascist architecture but I mean, in insofar as there could be some I mean, castles might be one of the closest things, um, just given that relationship with the military. I mean the, the Kwantung army in um Manchuria, they they build their headquarters building essentially like a replica um of Osaka or, or Nagoya Castle when you look at it. Um it, it it's fascinating. It's and it still exists. It's now used by the Chinese Communist Party, um, which is kind of an, an interesting thing, um, up in in Changchun, But um, well, I mean, one thing I wanted to just briefly touch on is is, is Nathan, um, in his question, kind of mentioned this kind of tradition modernity connection. Um, one thing, since we're talking about Osaka, is when they're rebuilding Osaka Castle, which kind of starts in 1928 and takes about three years, when they're rebuilding the castle keep there, um, it's supposed to look like Hideyoshi's keep from the outside. But, you know, anyone who's been inside it knows on the inside it's it's quite institutional. It's made of steel-reinforced concrete, Um, and this is, you know, pretty much the most modern building material at that point. It's got express elevators, and it is very consciously a combination of tradition in terms of form and modernity in terms of strength, Um, that, you know, you're using the most modern materials and technologies in there, and, you know, you're really kind of showing off your capabilities um and you know someone once once pointed out after a talk i gave on this once they said well you know if if toyotomi hideyoshi would have had uh, steel reinforced concrete he would have used it too yeah that's probably a quite quite a good point <laughs>
1: um, so i wanted to uh, ask one more question about this chapter before we sort of close out uh, part 1 and move on to part 2 and that is about the fate of castles in wartime and you've already talked about how for example osaka was transformed into this you know massive uh, uh, munitions factory, right? Uh, so more generally, sort of what happens to castles in wartime, you know, they're their sites of garrisons and so on and so forth. Um, how does that change, if at all, uh, between, say, 1937
2: and 1945? Um, so that's, it's an in- interesting development because they end up, um, a lot of the big garrison castles, um, as I mentioned, Osaka is a good example, Nagoya. Um, they're kind of this this very large garrison with a, a little public park often in the middle of it that people can access those parks get gradually shut down. So in Osaka, um, first they, 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 prohibit photography. Um, then a couple of years later, they say, okay. Um, and they block out all the windows. So you can't actually look out of the the keep anymore. And then they just ban the public completely. I think in 1943, I um, mean, that's something we see throughout Japan is this these castles become off limits, they're completely, uh, military sites. Um, And as a result, you know, many of them are also targets of bombings um, in uh, the the Second World War towards the end. Um, Quite a few of them are destroyed. Nagoya is an an excellent example. That's that's destroyed in the firebombing of Nagoya, early 1945. Um, Strangely enough, the relationship between these castles as being military sites and their fate is not all that close. Um, Also, given kind of the specifics of American bombing um that um the US was often bombing um civilians they were often hitting the areas where the workers lived rather than the actual military sites so there for example himeji castle which was right in the middle of a, a major military base um survived the war but castles like wakayama um ogaki you know these were not military bases in around these castles um but um they were they were destroyed in in various um bombings I mean, Hiroshima is another excellent example, which Ron um, will talk a bit more about. But, you know, the castle is is blown over by um, the A-bomb. And, you know, Hiroshima is is one of the largest military bases, um, probably the largest in Western Japan at the time. And so, I mean, many castles, you know, do essentially um, fall along with um, the Imperial Japanese Army.
1: Right. So we'll, we'll get, uh, I think, most specifically to Hiroshima Castle in Chapter 6. Uh, but for now, on that rather disturbing note, let's move on to Part 2, uh, which is From Feudalism to the Age of Space. Uh, and I'll be directing my questions uh, first to Dr. Zweigenberg for this. So Chapter 5 is uh, Castles in War and Peace, uh, Part 2, uh, Kokura Kanazawa and the Rehabilitation of the Nation. So here you're looking at the roles of Japan's castles immediately after the war, sort of the 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 occupation period and its immediate aftermath, Um, and in particular, the sort of symbolic politics of the era, the transformation of local and national discourses about castles, Um, and also, as you say, castles' conservation and conservatism. Um, so you refer to the post-war uh, occupation, uh, 1945 to 52, as both a difficult and a difficult period and a critical chance for redefining and rehabilitating castles. So it's, again, this sort of period of rehabilitation as we had earlier in the 1880s uh, on. So can you tell us uh, about the fate of the castles in the immediate aftermath of the war? Um, and it seemed to me reading the book that in many ways this uh, sort of history is repeating itself or at least rhyming during this period. I yeah, definitely see
3: these sort of parallels. Yeah, there, there are definite parallels with the early Meiji period where you have uh, a complete change of values, a complete change in the political system, a complete change in the way people uh, look at castles and the role that castles uh, were playing at, uh, at cities' lives. It became, first of all, it was like Meiji, it was the issue of real estate. Suddenly you have all this open real estate that people wanted to use and it wasn't just any real estate, it was very symbolic real estate. right? There have been a lot of changes, but castles are still symbols. If only for symbols of how low the nation fell. We opened the chapter Open chapter with the quote about, I think it's Okayama Castle, where you have uh, returnees from the continent living, squatting in the tenshu at, at the keep and people um, feel quite low seeing uh, this castle that fell into disrepair and disuse and seeing the clothesline, the, the, the returnees, uh, you know, laundry of returnees uh, from the castle. It's is uh, pretty humiliating for a lot of people and we can talk about it more when we talk about Kokura, what happened to those symbols of the nation, the symbols of the military power. There's uh, a lot of parallels, again, with competition over this uh, by various groups. And I can talk to more about, and talk about specific castles, but this is an opportunity. Uh, this is an opportunity for many people and you can see it, I think, most clearly where we open it with the Imperial Castle, the bigger, biggest castle in Japan, which in 1948 changed its name from being an Imperial Castle to being an Imperial Palace. And this is uh, something quite peculiar. I usually open, uh, when I talk about this period, I usually ask, people, what is the biggest castle in Japan? The most answer I get is Nagoya, Osaka. And they're like, no one really seemed to think about um, the imperial castle, um, imperial palace now, or Edo castle, as a castle at all, which shows how radical was the change at this time and the redefinition of the past. Because it's something that you see, another power that you see, and you're going to see it in Heisei also, If is anything that is constant in castles is how in any one period, they negate the immediate period before that. So if in Meiji, they negate... Uh, in Meiji, the immediate Tugal uh, Pass is negated. Yet afterwards, in 1910s and 20s, the very low status of samurai and castles in, in early Meiji is negated. Then in a post-war, the military... Um, role of uh, castles is negated. And you can see it again in Heisei, where people look down concrete castles and so on. So there's this, all those, as you said, rhymes between uh, different uh, eras of castle building, of uh, castle history in Japan.
1: Yeah, and so uh, you, you've already uh, pointed a little bit to this, and of course it's in the uh, chapter title, but the chapter um, focuses on the sort of contrasting examples of Kanazawa and Kokura castles. Um, what happened to these castles, and what can they? Why why do they best illustrate uh, what you're trying to tell us in this chapter?
3: So the imperial castle uh, tell us um, much about the immediate change, uh, but you can see it the best in Kokoro and Kranzak. You have two extreme examples of what happened to castles uh, during the during the immediate post war. Um, in one, you have the progressive. Uh, winning the battle over the real estate of a castle, and the other you have the conservative uh, factions in uh, winning the fate of, the, of what happened in the castle. And Kanazawa is particularly interesting because it will happen again in the 90s. You'll have another change. So, Kanazawa was uh, the site of uh, like so many other castles. Of um, It was a military site, and like almost every other castle in Japan, it was taken over by the Americans. So the only exception uh, that I can think of are Hiroshima for obvious reasons. It was too dangerous. Uh, too dangerous, too radioactive, or considered radioactive at the time, and the imperial castle, which stayed in Japanese hands. Beside that, all castles became uh, American military sites. In Kanazawa, the Americans, uh, the Americans uh, very early decided to ev- vacate the site and give it to back to civilian Fort. The question is, who are they going to give it to, and who is going to get it? And Kanazawa is fascinating because there is this very contested uh, period where you have two different groups fighting over the site. On one hand you have um, Japanese uh, educators, uh, Kanazawa educators who want to create on the site Kanazawa University as a symbol of the transformation of Kanazawa from being a military city to an educational city, uh, which they eventually succeed, and a group of a group of Buddhists that want to reclaim the site uh, as their temple. Before it was um, a castle of the Maeda clan, it was a site of a Buddhist temple, which uh, this particular group wanted to reclaim. It was destroyed by Nobunaga and they want to reclaim it as negation of the hundreds of militarism. Um, and of course, they also want real estate. So there's this. Very interesting debate in Kanazawa. The victory of the progressive Kanazawa seen as victory for progressive values. And again, very victory for transformation from swords into pens, from soldiers into students, and so on and so on. Um, they're kicked out again in the 90s. But we can go back to it later. In Kokura, the American state and state well beyond under occupation. And in the mid 1950s, there started to have a uh, movement to of the Americans from the base and restore our pride, the Kokura Castle. And this is an anti-base movement, like many other anti-base movements, but unlike other base, anti-base movements, it's not a left-wing movement, it's a right movement. It's about restoring the pride of... Uh, Kokura restoring the pride of Japan It's led by veterans uh, who used to serve in the castle and are very disturbed by the fact that Americans are controlling the castle. So this thing here also sparked a lot of debates about what is the role of the castle, why do you want to restore the castle, what is the identity of Kokora. Um, people want to preserve it want to see it as something that will feel on the spiritual void. If you're going to rebuild the castle, rebuild our traditional values, and we feel the spiritual void left by the occupation and defeat. So you have very contrastive visions of what to do with a castle, uh, both in Kokora and in Kanazawa.
1: Yeah. Um, in chapter six, you move on to talking about uh, Hiroshima Castle very specifically. And this is the beginning of what I, I sort of see as a, a kind of unit, uh, chapters six to eight, uh, about the castle boom, as you call it, of the 1950s to the 1980s. Uh, so chapter six is Hukou. uh Hiroshima Castle Rises from the Ashes, um, and... Obviously, you know, Hiroshima is invested with a lot of uh, political baggage. Uh, so any questions about Hiroshima and uh, the, the castle, the sort of symbol of potential symbol of militarism is going to be a, a difficult and fascinating one. Um, I think it's fair to say that castles oddly then overlooked as part of the city's modern history. I guess it's kind of overshadowed. Uh, maybe that makes sense. Um, in its, you know, reimagination as a global city of peace. Um, but what can we learn then by bringing the castle into focus here, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it, why why spend our time talking about the castle when there's so much else to talk about with Hiroshima? Um, and in particular, in the, in the chapter, you compare it uh, and contrast it with the post-war history of the Gokoku Shrine, which is another understudied site, as far as I can tell. Um, and if you could tell us about the, that comparison, that'd be great too
3: yeah so for me, Hiroshima Castle, because I know so much uh about Hiroshima <laughs> having written a whole book about the post war history of Hiroshima, this is where the castle uh really gave me it most really looking at the castle really most radically influenced the way that I view the history of the, the Japanese history and the history of the city because I see how much of the military identity of Hiroshima has been completely erased by this post war transformation um, What you see when you look at the castle and you look at the uh, you look at the military you look at the castle and you look at the Goku shrine or the protected nation shrine is how important was the military and how much the shadow of militarism uh, kind of hovered above or actually hovered below the new identity of Hiroshima is a peace city. Uh, the castle was the symbolic center of Hiroshima. Uh, the symbolic center moved into the A-bomb Dome the, and Peace Park, uh, which is now is uh, seen as the center of Hiroshima. But if you spatially keep looking at through the castle and through debates over the construction of the castle and reconstruction of A-bomb Shrine that is on it, you will see how much of pre-war Hiroshima is still is still important uh, for post-World Hiroshima, for uh, issues of identity, of issues of history, and issues of what Hiroshima is as a city, stuff that you cannot see if you just look at those other buildings, if you look at this other identity as a peace peace city. You don't see there's so many layers to it. Uh, This is actually something that I intend to, uh, to pursue further, to write a book only about Hiroshima's and mil- and Hiroshima military past in the future because it really complicates our understanding of the city and complicates our understanding of uh, Hiroshima as a whole specifically I have to go uh, to your question about the uh, Kokoku Shrine about the very important political role of veteran groups um, in local politics in Hiroshima and other places also I mentioned Kokura before veteran groups are very powerful in Hiroshima politics, you can see it in Goku Shrine that is kind of tucked next to the Tenshu, but no one really paid attention to it. You have it used to be one of the most important uh, buildings in Hiroshima. Uh, it didn't always stand where it stands now. It used to stand where there uh, used to be a baseball stadium, another uh, symbolic center of uh, Hiroshima. Of, of Hiroshima. Um, but it moved next to the castle in some uh, convoluted uh, real estate and political dealing uh, between Hiroshima elites and the association to build the shrine. And through the transformation of both the shrine and the castle, you can see how fast ideas of Hiroshima identity have changed. So very briefly, the Goku Shrine in the beginning could not call itself Goku Shrine anymore. It was just the Hiroshima Shrine. And in the beginning, they wanted to also enshrine all the people who died in a bomb. The thing is that you hardly talk about this. People hardly talk about Hiroshima, but you had tens of thousands of soldiers dying in the A-bomb. But almost, if you look at Hiroshima memory, it's almost always focused on civilians. Um, There is this this peculiar moment, I was in Hiroshima, I was talking to a guy who was talking about memory maps their actual uh, application phone now you can see, um, and it's quite an amazing application. If you walk around Hiroshima on your phone, you can see the memories of uh, Hibakusha people who survived the bomb, where they were exposed to the bomb. And there is a huge gap in the center of the map, and it's a castle. There's almost no memory of the people, the soldiers who died, of the fact that Hiroshima was a military center. If you look at the Goku Shrine and people who were shrined there through the castle, you can see this and this gap coming into view.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so in, in chapter seven, then you uh, talk about smaller cities where uh, local identity becomes a more sort of paramount concern. And obviously, I mean, Hiroshima is something of a transition to, to this, in the sense that it is, you know, a, a local city, but it's, it's this large military city during, uh, you know, up to 1945. Um, and so in this chapter, Escape from the Center, Castles in the Search for Local Identity, you write, the Showa castle boom was as much about reconstructing regional identity as about ideology and national reinvention. Uh, this chapter uses four major case studies, uh, Odawara, which is between Yokohama and Mount Fuji, uh, Tsuruga castle in Fukushima uh, aizu the old domain, um, Shimabara castle in Nagasaki, famous from the uh, Christian rebellion in the 17th century, um, and then Kokura castle, which we've touched on before. Um, so befitting a chapter on regional identity, that's a very diverse group. Um, are there meaningful, useful commonalities, though, between these four castles? And what can they tell us about um, what castles meant during the high growth years in particular um, and the role played by the invention and mobilization of history in local development projects and local identity movements?
3: Yeah, here history uh, rhymes again. Uh, all i mentioned before, the way that uh, local castles in the Meiji period um, kind of symbolized Bushido better than which is a national uh, a national uh, ideology but better than other castles around we have the best Bushido is here uh, also you kind of have a repeat of this of people both wanting to show castles being a unique um, their castles being unique but also as the best example of a Japanese castle as part of the canon. so it's mostly about the commonalities about marginalization and wanting to belong. Ironically, uh, the kind of the quote that got me into uh, looking at the commonalities is by uh, Fujiwaka Michio, who is a guy responsible for constructing 14 castles, mostly look-alike lookalike, uh, Imeji um, knockoffs. I mean, I'm a little bit reductive here, but uh, basically he said that all of regional cities have become like little Tokyos. And there is a real anxiety uh, in all those cities about the loss of local identity as urbanization kick in and people move to the city and everywhere in Japan become ekimai, right? It all becomes the same, right? So there is a need to cement local identity and this is very different from place to place, but this common need of local places not to be run over by this huge rush of centralization of a huge rush of urbanization and focus on Tokyo and Osaka to a lesser extent. Um, you can also mention Wakayama and various other places uh, that are building their castles in a way to show that they still matter. Uh, you can see it even in the bosses or the war, is this is really sense of marginalization um, vis-a-vis Tokyo and you, almost humiliation the way that people from Tokyo relate to it or is kind of a toilet stop basically uh, but there's much more to it and when I, we looked at that we looked at Aizu Wakamatsu and Shimabara that you mentioned also have very strong grievances toward the um, very strong grievances towards the center it's not just and we're still going on today now there was 150 years from Meiji and there's still tension between Hagi and Aizu Wakamatsu right um, people still care about what happened during the Boschian War. It's part of local identity something that Mike Ward's book, uh, Major Essential Losers, uh, demonstrated quite well. And you can see it also in the castle buildings. There are building castle building with the loss of the group of Tokyo over those places, is kind of a revival and a return of um, narrative victimization. In um, some places like Kokura, there's this really interesting twist when the castle is supposed there is debate over what kind of castle you're going to build. You're going to build the original castle or Azuchi Mamoyama style, um, Imeji like or Nagoya like castle. And the people will push for the local one, actually, push it as a symbol of connection with the West and internationalism and of the local peer, local identity, but not of national identity. There is this new idea of connecting local and the regional and the global. And but in Kokura and in many other places, the um, regional, local, the unique um, design of the castle is not the one that was rebuilt, but something that is much nicer and brick more tourist as Uchimamayama, beautiful white castles like Imeji. So you can see it happening in different places, but almost with the same result, which is the biggest irony in a way of castles that are supposed to be symbols of local identity, but almost always look the same.
1: Yeah. Um, so in in your last chapter, which is chapter eight, uh, which is called Japan's New Castle Builders Recapturing Tradition and Culture, uh, you, you do uh, talk about sort of some of the the ways in which everything ends up looking the same, right? You're talking about these uh, two guys, uh, Kido Hisashi and Fujioka Michio. Um, as the representative castle builders of the post-war period. Um, And you focus on the reconstruction of two castles in particular. Uh, One is Kumamoto and the other is Nahue. And both of them have actually been in the news quite a bit here in in Japan for the past several years for for different reasons. Um, But if you could tell us about who these guys are and talk a little bit about their influence uh, in in creating a sort of post-war castle culture of the sort of kind that you've been talking about.
3: So Fujiaka and Michio and Kido Isachi, their career start, and I, know I can uh, talk more about it. Uh, but the career starts before the war. Uh, they both work with the army, uh, with daimyo families. They are um, they are pushing for interpretation of castles and symbols of bushido and Japanese spirit. And then after the war, there is this like we saw many other Japanese intellectuals and architects. They have this conversion or reconversion. Uh, into, uh, seeing castles as symbol of culture. And this is basically what we tried, I tried to capture in this chapter about the domestication. And we can see it also in other places, but dom- the, the domestication of castles, uh, from moving them from symbol of the military into safe symbol of cultural nationalism. And even though there's many differences between Kiro Isashi and, and, and Fujioka and Michio, uh, this is where they both aim eventually—a recapturing of Japanese cultural pride, right? Sim- mil- uh, not symbols of the military, but symbols of Japanese culture. Fujioka, for example, is talking on and on about how castles are the only symbol, the only place where Japanese have their own unique architecture, where don't mimic China or don't mimic the West. Uh, but this is something that the Japanese are, have an original contribution to. Also. Uh, as I mentioned before he 's also um, an advocate of local identity versus Tokyo, ironically because he comes from Tokyo, like so many of the construction companies and the architects and designers and Japan is so overtly centralized you can 't really escape Tokyo so even though those castles again are uh, just those castles are built as symbols of local identity uh, in Nagoya and in Komata, and living in Nagoya, you know how dear the castle is to Nagoya Identity. They're still doing it with Tokyo, uh, with Tokyo money and with Tokyo architects. Um, a lot of, of the sameness of castles uh, is the result of the fact that they were built by a pretty small number of architects and a pretty small number of construction companies. There is a lot more to be done about the economy of building. Uh, castles uh, the uh, and the companies that build them because they have a lot of a lot of uh, influence um, you can see it in one instance for example where the company that builds nagoya castle uh, also build uh, Aizu kamatsu and they kind of offer Aizu kamatsu why don't you guys also have a golden dolphin you know nagoya has them Aizu kamatsu never had any dolphins right but why not you know two for the price of one and they have the Golden Dolphins. In Nagoya, by the way, uh, where you, you see the, the, um, the construction company, Obashi getting in conflict with the city uh, over uh, those things and other things. Um, one time, for example, they wanted to fly the American flag from Nagoya Castle and the city objected to it uh, on August 15th. So city objected it for obvious reasons. So there's really, really interesting uh, dynamics between the construction companies and the cities.
2: Yeah, uh, Doctor I just wanted to um, pick up a little bit because um, Ran mentioned, um, you know, Kiyoh's uh, kind of pre-war history, um, and this is something which I mean, I, I do talk about a bit in in um, Chapter Four, is kind of the um, the kind of origins of of castle studies in Japan. Which I mean, people academics only really study castles. I mean, a little bit kind of in the nineteen tens. It gradually picks up in the 1920s, often influenced by developments in Europe and interest in castles, especially in Germany. And then in the 1930s, we really see establishment of kind of castle research as a field um, and actually even sponsored by the military. It, the military creates its own, the army creates its own kind of castle research division um, in, I think, 1933. But um, both Kido Hisashi and Fujioka Michio, um, they're both going through graduate school. Um, in the 1930s, they are doing studies of castles. They are working um, with people like Toba Masao, um, Oda Noboru, who are some of the the big figures in the in the pre-war period. And this older generation, they keep writing all the way um, through the war into the 1950s, 1960s. Fujioka and Kido, um, they kind of keep working and and you know actually building these castles. Then in the 1950s and 1960s, there's incredible continuity among the personnel who are doing these things. I mean, Ron mentioned um, the construction companies, the continuity there. There's a continuity among um, the scholars on castle research, um, this trans-war continuity. And I mean, another continuity that um, I'd like to maybe highlight is with the castle reconstruction projects themselves. I mean, we mentioned um, Osaka being reconstructed. Osaka, when it's completed in 1931, it has an incredible kind of inspirational effect. I mean, it ripples and and you know, dozens of cities want to now rebuild their own castles, their own keeps. And there are all these plans everywhere in the nineteen thirties to rebuild their castle keeps. I mean, Kumamoto is is a very good example of this. Um and obviously being in the nineteen thirties, with um kind of conflict, great depression, various other things, almost no one is able to realize it in the nineteen thirties, and these plans tend to get shelved. Um also the military decides that non uh, military use of concrete construction is is not allowed. Um but these plans are shelved and then they're the nineteen fifties. And so oftentimes these castle reconstructions that we are seeing in the 1950s, 1960s, um Izu mean, Wakamatsu is a good example. These are actually plans from the nineteen thirties that have been, you know, kind of dug out again and then realized. And so there we're um really seeing kind of this transwar continuity. I mean, the way they're they're kind of being framed is slightly different in the 1930s versus the 1950s. But the reality of wanting to reconstruct one's castle, recreate one's heritage um, really just goes on right through um, kind of this trans war period.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that you then go on to talk about in the conclusion is the way that it seems to have returned now. And I don't know whether you'd like to
3: comment on that.
1: Is that something you'd like to talk about?
3: Ah, Yeah, I, f- I thought you're uh, talking to, to Oleg. Um, yeah, uh, the continuity, uh, that's, I wanted to mention about continuities uh, also through, he- uh, not so much through Heisei, but in Shoah, the continuity of uh, the role of the military, uh, not the Japanese military, on uh, both the Japanese military, the Japanese ground, def- uh, the, GS, yeah, the Japanese defense forces, um, that have a very big role in the opening of castles, yeah military flybys and parades, uh, something that you don't see today anymore, but also the American military that parade, uh, that continue parade through castles. And the role of uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel figures that used to be pretty big in 1920s and 30s, a symbol of regional militarism, Date uh, Sumone and Kado Kiyomasa are maybe the biggest example of this. There is kind of, Kind of a recaptured, safe Japanese masculinity that is presented and paraded um, in castles uh, in this era. And it's actually continuing until today, the worshipping of local warlords. I mean, if you go to Sendai, it's really all over the place, the, the figure of Date Masamune uh, or Kato Kiyomasa in Kumoto And this is an idea of Japanese masculinity that transcended the war era and continue until today.
1: Yeah. Um, So uh, let's uh, move on to the conclusion, which is about the castle boom uh, that, that uh, is ongoing today. Uh, And we've sort of danced around this a little bit thus far, uh, but, uh, and I guess on a personal note, living in Nagoya, I'm very much aware of the fact that we're now uh, in the midst of a, another rebuilding project uh, that seems to be in very many ways uh, to sort of epitomize uh the heisei castle boom so can you tell us about that and uh what, how you see that fitting into this sort of longer history of the meaning the significance the functions
3: of castles um in modern japan continuities uh, abound first and foremost egos as you know very well about the, the the nagoya project is almost uh single annually driven by the mayor's uh decision to rebuild a castle in wood no matter what, and in a lot of those places it's something you see for sure and all over, it's just people wanting to leave their mark on history mayors wanted to leave their marks on history to be called to recapture this uh, role of daimyo, a lot of time, the mayors are dressed as, daimyo as they when they open the castle and they ride into the castle, that's something you can see uh, all over the place but I mentioned uh, if you want to keep talking about Nagoya, the Sudden rejection of the previous era uh, of concrete that you see all over the place, but there is of course a lot of departure. First and foremost is the new role of authenticity and the rebuilding of, uh, in wood. I mean, the whole idea of Nagoya is to rebuild it as an original, in original materials, using original methods, and uh, you can see it all over Japan. Um, and these have a whole a whole host of reasons. Um, this is something for maybe a much larger project, and we only touched it um, in the conclusion uh, where we talk mostly about uh, the military sites, which maybe I'll let Oleg uh, talk a little bit more about. But there, to be very brief, there is a whole host of developments, some even global, like the role of UNESCO and the Japanese uh, Japanese contribution to UNESCO's idea of authenticity. There is the burst of the bubble and the very sudden disappointment from the excesses of uh, excesses of uh, Shoah. There is the new ideas of environmentalism and green living and green city. and also a very heisei idea of Edo as a much more simple, Time, a much more simple time, which is connected to traditional uh, craftsmanship and the view of the castles as treasure droves of tradition, but not quite in the same way they talk about in Shaw. But now more about as preserving craftsmanship, preserving regional ways of doing things. So it's more about the materials and the way that people are using them, uh, rather than the shape of the castles than before um do you want to jump in and talk about a military
2: uh, angle yeah and i might just just add on there just to, to reinforce what you said earlier Ron, about um you know the reasons kind of behind this this move towards authenticity and wood is is this act of erasure you know this erasure now of the 1950s and 1960s the erasure of the concrete um you know let's tear down the concrete keep it Nagoya and rebuild it out of wood um, at Kanazawa, let's tear down the university um, and rebuild the castle out of wood. So part of that is is this erasure of the nineteen fifties and sixties. But the greatest, you know, erasure that I think has taken place, um, and incredibly effective, is has been the erasure of of the military. Um and virtually any castle site you go to in Japan today, um, you will not know that, you know, whether or not it was once a military base. Um in Nagoya, um, since we mentioned it is a good example, there's there's almost no indication that Nagoya was ever a, a major military site. Um, there's two little giveaways. There's a tiny little um, kind of storehouse. I think it's called called the the Nogi storehouse or something with no windows and kind of hidden in the park somewhere. I don't know if you've ever you've noticed it, Nathan. <laughs> um, and there's uh, yeah, I feel
1: like I feel like I might have actually overlooked it.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, there's nothing to see there really. And then the other thing is you um, know, the Gokoku Jinja, which is just outside the central roads. And the Gokoku Jinja, I mean, these are. You know, Ron talked about the one in Hiroshima. And these are the former branch shrines of the, of the yes, Kuni Shrine. And these were often um, constructed on parade grounds um, in castles, so in the military bases. And so you still see these artifacts. And if, if you see a Goku Jinja somewhere, um, there's a pretty decent chance that that was a military site um, right there, right next to that. Um, and so places where this, is, this erasure of the military has been so, so thorough. Um, places like Himeji for example you go into Himeji um, and there is a Gokoku Jinja um, but it's kind of around the corner and once you go into the castle you know there's this giant open space which used to be barracks and administrative buildings and all sorts of other things and that's all gone um, there is still a uh, the divisional headquarters building still exists but there's no signage there's no nothing it is now the administrative building um, of a Catholic girls school And so if you know what to look for when it comes to Imperial Japanese Army architecture, you say, hey, that looks familiar. Um, But it's just the administrative school, um, an almost very similar building up at the um, uh, Hirosaki Castle up in in northern Japan, Um, the divisional headquarters building. There is a Starbucks. Um, It's beautifully rushed, actually. It's one of the best Starbucks in Japan. Um, But, you know, there's no otherwise kind of real reference to the fact this used to be a military site. And I mean, just I don't think one of the things that's always, you know, have been really fascinating about Osaka to me is the fact that they do actually address this history at least on quite a superficial level, um, partly because they can't ignore it with this giant fourth division headquarters building that is now kind of a high end wing and, uh, and dinner yeah, venue.
3: Yeah, I mean, with the Coco Wujinja, it's actually, they're smack in the middle of most of those castle sites, but in the almost transparent to most people who go to those places because they're drawn to the castle itself, uh, the keep itself, sorry if you said castle itself, uh, the keep itself or the various fanciful ninja, I think you have it on everything Nagoya also, uh, ninja uh, attractions and the like. But if you go to those Gohugu Jinja, I just been to one in Senda a couple of weeks ago, and the history that is on display there do not hide the military at all. It's various version of the history uh, that is presented in the Yoshikar and Yoseku Jinja. It's very, very right-wing. It's very, very idealistic, uh, very idealizing of uh, Japanese martial history. It It's almost a time capsule of what those places used to be. I find it uh, f- fascinating and disturbing uh, the same way, but it also show how in the same castle space, you have so many versions of, of history, both erased and on display, um, which makes those places such a fascinating site.
1: Yeah. Um, so on that note, I think we're going to uh, start to wrap up here. Um, and before we go, though, I'd like to uh, give each of you an opportunity to talk about uh, any projects that you're uh, working on. And I think uh, in particular, um, anything related to this book, which you've already started to talk about a little bit, um so first Dr. Zweigenberg, since we've been uh you've been talking here
3: in the second half, can you tell us what you're working on these days? Yes, as I mentioned, uh my next project after I finish my uh, current book on which on a completely unrelated uh unrelated field of psychiatry and the atomic bomb, um it will be about the military history of Hiroshima. Hiroshima used to be until the war uh, Gunto, a military city, and this is this was the identity of the city which, as I mentioned before, is something that has been erased or kind of pushed aside uh, in the post-war. It's something that I'm very interested in both in the history of the city, uh, before the war, and then what happened to the sites, the military sites, either uh, Eugenia Harbor, which was very central in sending soldiers to the continent, military cemeteries, uh, the castle itself, and the like. So that's something I'm very interested in. It's trying to write the history of Hiroshima in a way, not without, but maybe beyond the bound. Um, another related project will be about the role of regional, uh, warlords, uh, and in promo- and the way that they change. Date Masamune, uh, and Katokyamasa that I mentioned repeatedly are kind of the central figures that I'm going to look at. But I'm also interested in the career of Toyotomi uh, Hideyoshi um much more of a national figure that uh, to look at how his figure changed um from Meiji period to the present.
2: Sounds it sounds fascinating. And uh Dr. Banash? Um thanks uh, I guess working on several different things. The, the two projects which are kind of related to um or really out of this, this book. I mean one of them is looking more at um at these modern castle sites, um, and looking at some of the artifacts that we see in them now. I mean, um, the Gokoku Jinja specifically, something I'm very interested in is the role that those play in, in both for Japan. I'm doing quite a bit of, of research on that, um, looking at those kind of throughout Japan and, and in the context of, of kind of the physical sites and how, how those are constructed. And um, then the main thing I'm kind of working on now is a book um, which comes out of both the castle project and also my, my first book on, on the invention of Ushio, um, which is more looking at um, kind of medievalism in Japan. And when I want to talk about medievalism it's you know meaning that the use of of the medieval medieval symbols medieval ideas um, in the modern period essentially um, and there's been a great deal of, of work done on this um, topic of medievalism in especially Europe also um, America um, but not as much in the case of Japan and this is is very much a, a comparative um, global project looking at kind of reciprocal influences um on japanese medievalism from other countries i mean especially um europe you know how the victorian chivalric revival kind of you know influenced um kind of construction of bushido um, and kind of the revival of, of samurai symbols there so um that's kind of the main focus at the moment well it
1: sounds great and i hope that we will have both of you back on the podcast uh i guess separately in the future uh when these books come out thank you yeah oh, thanks wonderful. for time today
3: guys thanks a lot yeah, it's great talking to you mm-hmm. yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it right. thank you the book.